You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Good morning, River City. You may be seated. Well, I'm very thankful that you all braved the weather this morning and came out to church. Uh, It's good to see all of you here today. For those who do not know me, my name is Marty, and I'm the Director of Care and Community here at River City Church, and it is my privilege to open the Word of God with you today. So if you would, please bow your head and join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, you are a good God. You are a good God who brought news of great joy. We pray that that joy would be real to us today. I pray, Lord, that you would really speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you give me the correct words to say. I pray that they would be of you. And I pray that you open hearts to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is the second day of our Advent series in which we are going through Isaiah chapter 9, going from verses 1 through 7. So if you want to get your Bibles ready, you can open them up there. And we're going to be using this passage to help us remember the true gift of Christmas this season, which is Christ. Now, Jake opened it up to us last week, preaching from verses 1 and 2 on how Christ came to earth to bring light into darkness. And the next few weeks, we'll continue through verse 7 on the topics of joy, hope, and peace, and how each of these can be found in Christ. So this morning, we're going to be talking about joy, which is really a pretty common theme this time of year. Perhaps you've seen it on Christmas cards, which might look something like this. Joy, the Armstrong family. Or this, joy. Or perhaps this one. Or maybe you've seen it in other decorations, such as these, a nice wreath to hang on your door, which says joy. So everybody is into joy right now. However, None of these things really tell us anything about what we are to be joyful about. And so that's what we want to talk about here today. And before I start this morning, can I just tell everybody that joy can be hard. Joy can be hard to have, and joy can be hard to maintain. Can I get an amen from anybody? Thank you. Joy is hard. And do you know what else is hard? writing a sermon on joy when you don't particularly feel very joyful. That is hard. You kind of feel a little hypocritical doing that. So during the process of writing the sermon, there is some heart work that had to be done. And there is some heart work that is still being done. And I hope that just as it's been working on me, that it will work on you as well this week. Another thing about writing this message is that as I was going through my preparations, I started to feel a little deja vu, like, I've done this before. 
Then I remembered the last sermon that I preached here at River City this past summer was also on the topic of rejoicing. So I guess this is a message that I need to hear and a message that we continually need to be reminded of. But I think that is a good reminder for us all that we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget the truths that we hear every Sunday, which is why it's so important to read our Bibles regularly, to go to church, to go to community group regularly, because we easily drift away. Now, it may not mean that we're running away from our faith and abandoning God, but we need continual, continual reminders of who we are and what God has done for us. We need continual reminders because the world is not shy in distracting us and pulling us away. So my big point for us this morning is that we can have great joy through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before we move on to our text, I'd like to take a moment right here to think about the word joy. What does it mean when we talk about joy? Well, in its most basic sense, joy is really an emotion. It's a feeling, and it is synonymous with happiness. Now, right there, I'm sure that there will be some people who will disagree with me on this, for it is incredibly common for people in the church to differentiate joy from happiness as two distinct qualities. And I know this because I've done it many times myself. We tend to treat happiness as a more shallow attitude, which is dependent upon our circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is not shaken by external uh, factors. Joy is solid, but happiness is fleeting. And if you do a quick Google search on the difference between joy and happiness, you will see all kinds of Christian articles supporting this distinction. And to be fair, I do believe that there is a distinction, um, and there is, that is, this, this distinction is based upon a true reality. There is a sense in which our emotions can go up and down easily based upon our circumstances. And there is an optimism and joy we can have in our hearts that goes deeper than our circumstances. But I don't think this is a distinction between joy and happiness, but rather they are just different ways that we experience the same emotion of gladness. Now, if you don't believe me, Here's a quote from theologian and former pastor John Piper. If you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. So we see that in the Bible, as well as in the dictionary, joy and happiness are basically the same. So why do I take so much time to go over this point? Why do I care about these semantics? Well, the reason I say this is because I think that sometimes in separating joy from happiness, we tend to lose the happiness of our Christian faith. We may read our Bible verses about joy we sing songs about joy like we will this morning, and we discuss joy academically in our community groups. 
but we don't really experience joy. But as we'll see today in our scripture reading, joy is not just something we cognitively agree with. It's something we should experience. So it is my prayer that the message today would not give us, or that it would give us that internal and deeper happiness that I believe comes from the Lord. So, with that introduction, let us look at our passage, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land, uh, a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts we will do, or will do this. All right, the verse that I've been specifically tasked with teaching on today is verse 3. So I'll read that one more time to help us focus in on it more. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The central point of this verse is that the people who had once been living in deep darkness, but who saw the great light, are now incredibly happy. Their joy has increased. They are rejoicing and the nation is multiplying. It's a verse really high on positive emotions. Now, right off the bat, in this verse, we're met with a challenging line which says, you have multiplied the nation. And this one sentence, let me tell you, gave me considerable trouble in the preparation of this sermon. See, there is no consensus on what this actually means. And there's a lot of speculation and various interpretations on what it means. Some would say that it refers to the growth of national Israel after the Babylonian captivity. Others that it is about the end times. Others that it refers to the multiplication of God's people to include Gentile believers once Jesus came. And there are others as well. Now some commentators conveniently skip right over this line 
and move on to the rest of the verse, which makes my job kind of difficult. For our time here this morning, I don't feel it would be the most beneficial thing for us to go too in-depth on what this one clause is talking about. The way I want it to look, the way I want us to look at it today is that multiplying the nation is simply another way of saying that the people are extremely blessed. They're full of joy and things are going well for them. And I believe this understanding of the sentence makes sense in context, fits with the style of Hebraic poetry, and allows the passage to be read with much more ease. So we see here in this verse that the people are blessed and rejoicing. They have great joy, great happiness, and their joy is compared with two different events. First, it is compared to the harvest at the end of a growing season. Now, imagine for a moment that you were a farmer nearly 3,000 years ago. You just worked all season long, long days and long weeks, laboring in your field without the luxury of a tractor or any modern machinery. And I'm sure it was a lot of work to plow, plant, weed, and all those other things farmers do, all by hand. And now, after all of the sweat and the time has been put in, the reward is finally here. It's harvest time, and you can obtain the fruit of your labor. It is finished. You can fill your barns and be glad. Now, I've never been a farmer personally, but I can imagine how incredibly joyful and satisfying that this would be. In a similar way, Isaiah compares the people's joy with dividing the spoil. The imagery here is of a great military victory in which the winning side is now able to take what the enemy has left behind. The threat of warfare is over. The risk of death and injury is gone. The soldier is free to enjoy his reward. All the food, tools, money, clothes, whatever that the enemy left behind is now yours. Again, I have never been a soldier, but I can imagine the joy of returning home after a war to my family safe and secure. This is the kind of ecstatic joy that Isaiah is talking about here in Isaiah verse 9, verse 3. The joy of victory the joy of completeness, the joy of our trouble being behind us and good times being ahead. So if this is the kind of joy that Isaiah is speaking about, I want that kind of joy. And I think we must genuinely want to know what reason does Isaiah give for having such jubilation? Because I want some of that. How can we experience that joy too? Well, this is where context is important because we don't get that from just reading verse 3. We have to look on. And if we look ahead at what we see in the following three verses, we see that they all begin with the same word, for, which is the Hebrew word ki, or kai. I'm not actually sure. I don't speak Hebrew. But I asked Jake, and he wasn't sure either. So we're going with ki. This conjunction tells us that these verses are all connected. Therefore, the joy in verse 3 is a result of what is said in the following verses. So, this passage is kind of written backwards. 
Verse 3 is actually the end result. And in each consecutive verse, we're moving back to learn how these things came to be. So I don't want to step on the toes of those who are preaching in the following two weeks on these verses, but I do want to give a quick overview of them so we can know the reason for having such joy. So we ask the question from verse 3, why are these people able to be so joyful? And in verse 4, it tells us, the people are joyful because the people are free. Their heavy burden, the staff on their shoulder, and the rod of their oppressor has been broken. Whatever sort of oppression that they had been under is now gone. They were a free people now. No more bondage. And this is certainly a reason to be joyful. But now we ask, how did this freedom come about? So we look at verse 5. They are free because the war is over. Verse 5 uses some poetic imagery to show that the enemy was gone and what remained was even disposed of. Their bloody boots and garments were ready to be burned up. There was no more fighting to be done. They had peace from their enemy. But now we ask, well, how did they receive this victory of war? And we look at verses 6 and 7. They had victory because a ruler had come, a ruler who would come as a child, a ruler who would be over the government, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, a ruler whose power and reign would grow without end, a ruler who would reign with justice and righteousness forever. He is the one who would bring about these things. He is the reason for the victory, he is the reason for the freedom, and he is the reason for the joy. So if we were to look at these verses in reverse order, we would see that, one, a mighty, just, and eternal ruler has come as a child. Number two, he has victory over the enemy in battle. Three, This victory would free the people from their oppression. And four, this freedom would be reason for exceedingly great joy and happiness. That is basically the message of Isaiah 9, 3 through 7 in a quick nutshell. And if we put it, and if we put that same narrative into New Testament language, it would sound something like this. Jesus came to earth as a child as a son, and he rules over all the powers, and he will rule forever. By his death and resurrection, he has secured victory over Satan and sin and death. And by his victory, all those who believe in him are set free from the burden of sin. And this freedom is reason for great rejoicing. That is what Christmas ought to be joyful about. This is the good news of great joy at Christmas. Now remember our big point. We can have great joy through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now before we go on, I do want to stop and ask an assessment question. When was the last time you truly felt the joy of the Lord? 
Now remember that joy is not just a theological concept that we think about, but joy is an emotion. When was the last time your heart truly was stirred by the gospel and you responded with true happiness? Now, we know we, I know we all have different personalities and people will show their joy differently than others. So it doesn't mean you have to be like all giddy and happy. But it should concern us if this sort of joy in our hearts is not really a reality for us. For joy is a fruit of the Spirit, as is listed in Galatians 5. Joy ought to be a common characteristic of the people of God. Now this, like I said, doesn't mean that we're just always happy with big smiles on our faces all the time. But joy should not be a rarity for the believer. Happiness should not be a rarity for the believer. We have the greatest reason to be joyful in the world, and our emotions should reflect that. Now, one part of my job that I especially enjoy is getting to hear the testimonies of nearly everyone who gets baptized or becomes a member at River City. And I especially love hearing the stories of our young new believers. And a couple weeks ago, we got to celebrate the baptism of Will Zimmerman here at the church. And a couple days before we did that, I got to personally hear Will's story of grace. And the joy that he had in his heart was so clearly evident when we spoke that it just like shone from his face. It was, it was so beautiful. And when we finished talking together, like, I just wanted to go and read my Bible right there because it was just so contagious. He had the joy of the Lord. It wasn't long ago that Will was living in darkness, but now the light of Christ shines brightly from him. Hallelujah. Now for those of us who have been Christians longer, it can be easy to lose that emotional wonder of our salvation. It can be easy to lose sight of the greatness of new life in Christ. If that is you, let us be aware of that this morning. Let us not fall into the monotony of life, simply going through the emotions. Let us remember where we were and what we have received. So if you will, please turn with me for a moment to a very familiar Christmas passage, Luke 2, verses 8 through 12, which was read earlier by Dave, and uh, I'm going to read it again. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This was the first public announcement of the king's arrival, and it was to a lowly band of shepherds. And this was the first thing that the angel says to them 
is that he had good news of great joy for all the people. And what was this great news? A savior had been born. This was the child foretold in Isaiah chapter 9. But the angel at this time didn't use the language found in Isaiah 9.6. He didn't tell the shepherds that a wonderful counselor had been born or a mighty God or an everlasting father or a prince of peace. Although all of these would have been wonderfully good news for the shepherds to hear. What he said was that a savior had been born. Christ the Lord, a savior. This was the good news of great joy for the people. A savior had been born. And this was good news, not just of joy, but great joy. Now let's think about that word savior. In order for someone to be a savior, there must be someone who needs saving. Someone must be in danger or in peril in some way for a savior to exist. I think that one reason we can tend to lose our joy as Christians is that we forget this truth. We forget that we have been saved from something. So, we must ask, what have we been saved from? Now, it may be that Jesus has saved you from a variety of burdens, perhaps from the burden of addiction or the burden of hopelessness, gluttony, vanity, depression, perfectionism, and for all those things we should rejoice. But freedom from those things should just be byproducts of the ultimate freedom that we have in Christ. Look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It should be on the board. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What have we been saved from? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were therefore under the wrath of God. We were separated from God and in slavery to our sin. Think about that. Not just in the abstract, not just cognitively, but, well, yes, cognitively, but really think about that for yourself. Outside of Christ, you were separated from God, and you were by nature children of wrath. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Left to yourself, you are not worthy of God. Left to yourself, you are without hope, without God in the world, and that is a heavy weight to bear. So one reason why those of us who have been Christians for many years can tend to lose some of our joy is that we've lost a sense of the burden that we have been freed from. Our Christian life has become monotonous and old hat. We forget the depths that we have been freed from. So to read a Bible verse which says, a savior has been born, or to hear, you are forgiven, we're not so affected. Let us remember the depths that Christ has pulled us out from, 
Let us remember that we were dead in our trespasses, separated from Christ and without hope and without God in this world. That's from Ephesians 2.12. However, that's one side of things. I think that for some of us, perhaps many of us, the reason that we may lack joy is actually the opposite. Instead of forgetting the burden of our sin, we still carry it around with us. As believers, as if we've forgotten that a Savior has come. We live life as if we're still under the condemnation of our sin. Our religion functionally plays out as continually feeling guilty and gloomy and sad about our shortcomings. We hate our sin, and rightly so. We should hate our sin. So we ask Jesus to forgive us. And we believe that we are forgiven and that God loves us but then we live as if we must now be perfect for God to truly accept us. We live as if we must earn God's favor. My friends, I don't believe that Christ saved us and called us his children so that we can walk around with our heads down and feel sad and bad about ourselves. He saved us so that we can rejoice and glorify him in thanksgiving and praise with gladness. It is a good reminder to know that God loves extending grace. He doesn't reluctantly forgive your sin because he feels compelled to. God doesn't hold a grudge against his children for not being perfect yet, for in Christ you are perfect. But sometimes I act like he is holding this grudge against me. Sometimes we do act like God still has something wrong with us. We behave as if God has something against us. So no wonder we can find it hard to truly have the joy of the Lord. But this is not the gospel. The gospel is that a Savior has come who paid the full price for your sins and now delights in forgiving his children. He loves to love you. Micah 7.18 says that God delights in steadfast love. Now indeed, God does hate sin. Yes, if we sin, we should feel guilty and grieve what we have done. But when we repent and when we give it to him, we should feel even more greatly filled with the joy of our forgiveness. So with that, I want to ask a couple questions for you to consider this week and in your community groups. Number one, do you tend to lack joy because you tend to forget the burden you once carried? Or number two, do you tend to lack joy because you truly aren't believing in God's grace? If you answered yes to the second question, let me remind you of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so far, we've covered that we have joy because we have a Savior. We have one who has freed us from a bondage to sin and wrath. We have a Savior who defeated Satan and stands victoriously in heaven and now loves to show love and grace to his children. 
The last thing I want to cover, just briefly, is that we are not just saved from something, but we are saved to something. It's one thing to tell a guilty convict that he is free from a prison sentence and that he may leave the confines of his cell. That would certainly be a joyous experience in itself. But it is another thing to say that the man has been freed from prison and now has been given a seaside mansion on a tropical island somewhere. That would certainly increase his joy, wouldn't it? My friends, this is the kind of joy that we have in Christ. We aren't just forgiven, but we are children of God. And we now have joy that God is making all things new and that one day all of the consequences of sin will be gone. We will be with God eternally. We will be with the one who made us and loves us and redeemed us. Earlier, earlier, we read from Ephesians chapter 2. And if we go down from where we read just a few verses to verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have received the incomparable riches of his grace. We don't even know what all that means exactly, but we know that it is good. We know that we have an eternal inheritance to spend with our God in a right relationship with him for which we were created. This is what we've been saved to, saved from separation from God and sin and hell, and we've been saved to a new life, an eternity with God in paradise. That is the reason to be joyful. That is reason to be glad. Paul writes in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. We always have reason to rejoice. Will there be times of sorrow in this life? Certainly. Will there be pain and suffering? Absolutely. But there's always reason to be joyful, for our joy is not founded on the transient things of this world, but on the eternal promises of God. Now I'd like to close our time this morning by sharing with you a quick story from one of my favorite books. It's called God Smuggler. And it's about a missionary named Andrew who worked smuggling Bibles into communist countries during the Cold War era. It's a wonderful book, and I'd recommend it actually to any of you. But the story I want to tell has actually nothing to do with his missionary journey, but it actually took place while Andrew was not even a believer yet. See, he was a soldier fighting in the East Indies, and during his time there, he bought a monkey as a pet. And he loved this monkey dearly. But as the monkey grew bigger, he noticed that it seemed to be in a lot of pain. Finally, one day he investigated further and saw that when the monkey had been young, its first owner had tied a wire around its belly as some sort of a leash. Well, the wire had never been removed, 
And now the monkey had grown to a size where the wire was digging into its skin. Well, as soon as Andrew saw this, he took out his knife and he performed a little minor surgery on the monkey, cutting the wire and freeing the monkey from its pain. And immediately, the monkey jumped up, screeched, ran around the room in its newfound joy. And from that time on until the monkey's release, the monkey almost never left Andrew's side. He was his faithful companion. And why was that monkey so happy and so joyful? Because it had been freed from his burden. He had been in constant misery under that wire, but Andrew had set him free. In the same way, as Christians, we ought to have the same kind of joy because our burden has been taken away. But even more than this monkey, who was later released back into the wild, we're never going to be released. We're never going to be let go. We have an eternity to spend with our Savior, the one who freed us. So let us be happy in that. Please join me in prayer. God, you've given us much reason to be joyful and happy. And Lord, we, we confess those times when we, we do not believe the gospel in our hearts. Lord, there's times that we hold on to our sin when it's been forgiven. There's times when we don't remember what great a gift you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the incomparable riches that we have in Christ now. Lord, I pray that you help us to trust you more, to know you more, and how to praise you this morning in the freedom that we have received. In Jesus' name, amen.